I think of chi in many ways, of course. You know, there's the nitrous oxide theory. There's, I love the idea of light. Chi is light. So I do think we can be light beings and it has this dual nature of wave and particle, which is so perfectly yin and yang. But then I just think chi is really about, it's about this innate intelligence that we have. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. I've been thinking about retirement lately. No, not the retirement of closing my practice or quitting the podcast, but the retirement of ways of being that were helpful at one time, but are now rusty habits. Retire from an emotional stance that the world is unfair and it's my job to fix it, to put to pasture the frames of reference that have grown too narrow and constrictive and close off possibility rather than open it up. It's not about stepping back from the world, but rather re-engaging it with more vitality and with more of that edge of this might not work, but I want to see where it goes. I'm looking to be more friendly with conflict, tolerant enough to give a fair and thorough listen to those with whom I disagree, retiring my reactivity and giving more space to the possibility that I've got something to learn from those who boil my blood and where I'd like to lash out with dismissal or sarcasm, it might be a better practice to lean on empathy so that I can see what others see, so I can understand what they fear that I don't fear, or that I can see and leave some compassion and space for what they believe that I don't believe. Some years ago, I retired my office space and moved my practice into my home. That required a not small change in perspective. I'm now in the process of retiring some ideas about acupuncture, and oriental medicine that I've carried for a long time. I've been staunch in the belief that acupuncture belongs to us. The us meaning those with the schooling in oriental, eh, East Asian, whatever you want to call it, medicine. But much to my surprise, I'm coming around to it's more that we belong to acupuncture. And as this method and perspective meets and permeates our culture, it might be that acupuncture winds up in the hands of all kinds of different professionals. I know a psychotherapist. I think it would be great if he could put a few needles in the ear for a client in the midst of working through ancient trauma. I wonder if it would be more helpful to more people if a nurse practitioner could do some simple and effective acupuncture rather than prescribe a drug for a patient. I find myself softening my stance of what I've considered right and fair if my goal and my intention is to help reduce as much suffering as possible. What opportunities might arise if I retire the idea that only somebody with a DAOM and 100K in debt was qualified to understand acupuncture? What if we found creative and effective ways to use the connectivity of the internet and the wealth of digital communication tools 
to teach and to learn medicine. What if we made our medicine more accessible and more inclusive by getting acupuncture into the hands and hearts of other professionals? I know, I know I'm treading on a minefield with this rumination, but I'm rather curious at the moment to explore how we as a profession might view ourselves if we worked from the stance of we belong to acupuncture, it does not belong to us. And one more thing, if we are falling back on the position that we are better trained, but we're not getting the clinical results commensurate with our so-called better training, then we need to retire the idea that more training makes us better at what we do and then figure out just what it takes to be more effective in our work. Who we are is a question we ask ourselves as individuals. Where we belong and how we work, those are the questions we consider as a profession. And while 20 years ago, it was commonly accepted that we would not work within the structures of conventional medicine, today, that's an increasingly open path. So much so that schools, which at one time had the words oriental medicine in their name, now use terms like health and science or integrative medicine. Is this good news? Bad news? Much like the story of the Chinese farmer's lost horse, we don't know. In this conversation with Robin Adcock, we find out how she wound her way into an integrative medicine setting, and I think you'll be surprised at the path that she traveled. We'll get into all that in a moment, but first, a word from the folks that make it possible for you to enjoy Geological. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face, so subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. 
I love how technology can help to automate my office, and I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Welcome to Shop Talk. In this portion of the podcast, we are bringing you roughly 15 minutes of practical clinical methods, perspectives, and advice that has its work boots on. This section is all about practical material that you can begin to investigate the next time that you walk into clinic. Additionally, visit the show notes page for supporting materials from this week's guest on Shop Talk. All right, roll up your sleeves. Let's get to work. Hello, my name's Rebecca Avon and I'm a paediatric acupuncturist in the UK. I want to talk today about the importance in clinic of not confusing behaviour with pathology. And specifically in relation to this, I want to talk about the concept of yin fire in children. When you study paediatric acupuncture, one of the first things you learn is the distinction between excess, sh, children, and deficient, shu, children. You will learn that deficient children tend to be pale, quiet, have slender bodies, need a bit more rest, that they may be perhaps more clingy, and that excess children 
tend to be robust and have ruddy red cheeks, lots of energy, strong, intense emotional reactions and are not afraid to assert themselves in the world. In clinic, as is so often the case, the distinction is not often that clear-cut. And actually, this distinction really increasingly feels like it doesn't fit what we see in children in clinic in the West in the 21st century. I am increasingly seeing children who, at first glance, appear to be excess children, but who are actually deficient children. More specifically, their behaviour leans towards that of an excess child. They're full of energy, uh, they're boisterous, perhaps even a bit hyperactive. But the other signs and symptoms that we see are all suggestive of deficiency. They're pale, they're thin, they don't eat much, and everything gets worse when they're tired. So what is going on here and how can we make sense of it? Well, the way that I think we can very much make sense of it and therefore treat these children in the way that they need and really bring about change in them is to look at Li Yuan's concept of yin fire. Li Yuan first discussed this concept in the Pi Wei Lun, which he wrote in 1249. Let's look at what this concept of yin fire is. It's essentially a pathology that stems from a deficiency of both spleen qi and yuan qi. One of the roles of yuan qi in particular is to hold the minister fire in place, in its place of concealment, in the lower burner. When yuan qi is weak, the minister fire then escapes from its place of concealment, rises up, weakens the spleen in the middle burner and goes upwards to the upper burner where it tends to harass the heart and the pericardium. So immediately when you hear this concept of yin fire, you hopefully can see why so many children are appearing excess in their behaviour because they have this pathological fire harassing the heart, but that it stems from a deficiency which explains the rest of their signs and symptoms. And this pathology can also come about not only from the spleen being weak, but also from the kidneys being weak. So when kidney yin specifically is insufficient, the kidneys are not able to effectively control the minister fire, 
which is then further stoked by the heat that arises from the yin deficiency and again rises upwards pathologically and harasses the heart and the pericardium. So it's the rising up of the fire, disturbing the shen, that causes the behaviour and it's the deficiency in the yuan qi, in the spleen and or kidneys that causes the other deficient signs and symptoms. So why is yin fire so common in children today? Well, there are many, many aspects of 21st century life that lead to the formation of this pattern. For example, we tend to have children later than we did, which may lead to there being more chance of children having deficient yuan qi. Generally, children have very overscheduled lives and a very intense emotional environment. Interestingly, Li Yuan also said joy, anger, worry and fright weaken the Yuan Qi. And those emotions that he mentioned are quite Yang emotions. It's striking that he didn't mention more Yin emotions such as grief and sadness. And it's these yang emotions that children are particularly prone to and have this agitating effect, furthering that tendency for the minister fire to rise upwards. There are also many other factors in life which tend towards children's spleen becoming more and more deficient. Some of these factors occur in pregnancy, For example, the use of cold medications, lack of rest, lack of appropriate support and nourishment for the mother, or birth factors, the use of cold medications such as antibiotics and anaesthetics during labour. And then after birth, there are even more factors which can negatively impact on the spleen of the child. Um, a poor, cold diet, lots of empty calories, lots of snacking, excessive consumption of cold and raw food, the tendency for children to do a lot of mental work from a young age, and generally living in an age of information overload, And it's the spleen that does a lot of the work of having to process and transform all of this information. And then children may have either too much or not enough exercise. And children, for example, of divorced parents, spleen may be further impaired by the fact that they're moving around between different houses during the week. And then there are lots of aspects of life which increase the tendency of the minister fire to become pathological and rise up. The intense and prolonged emotions that we've already mentioned, generally living a very overstimulated lifestyle with lots of cognitive activities, 
And yes, we can't avoid mentioning screen time and excessive screen use in children. And the minister fire is only healthy when it remains in the lower burner. It is said that it should be level and calm. And all of these factors of life will increase its tendency to rise upwards and become anything other than level and calm. So, yin fire essentially describes a situation where there is heat above and cold below, or excess above and deficiency below. And we can readily see this in children who may feel hot in their head, but their belly is cold or their feet are cold. So the next question and the most important one, of course, is what do we do about it? The way to successfully treat yin fire is to strengthen the root, to supplement the spleen and the kidneys and the yuan qi. When the spleen and the kidneys and the, and the yuan qi become stronger, they then effectively keep the minister fire in its place of concealment and it no longer pathologically rises upwards and harasses the shen. So during the course of treatment, we see that children begin to become calmer, they sleep better, their behaviour becomes more manageable, more conducive to good relationships and the ability to pay attention and have focus. Very often we see their appetite increase, so they're more able to supplement their postnatal chi from diet rather than from drawing too heavily on the chi of those around them. So we need to be very mindful when we see a child whose behaviour may on the surface look like it comes from an excess full pathology to see whether actually it becomes it comes from this condition of yin fire and the appropriate treatment principle when that is the case is to strengthen the root and of course we should always remember that in children less really is more we need to do simple treatments and use points that strengthen the root and help to bring chi downwards. Points such as Ren4, Stomach 36, Kidney 1, which we can use just with Moxa, we don't need to needle it. And we would also need to give appropriate lifestyle advice and work with the family to try and lessen any elements of the child's life which are prolonging this tendency to yin fire. 
So when we successfully treat yin fire, we not only help the child to feel better, um, and obviously that has huge impacts on every other aspect of their life, but we're also lessening the chances of the child growing up to develop chronic inflammatory autoimmune type conditions. The reason that Sun Simiao said that there is no greater Tao than the Tao of nurturing the young is because when we treat a child, we're also treating the adult who they are to become. And it's much easier to eradicate these pathologies in childhood where the qi and the zhang fu and the organs are not yet fully formed or set than it is in the latter stages of life. So it's really important to be aware of yin fire not to jump to the conclusion that a hyperactive or even disruptive child necessarily has a full pathology, but to be mindful that this behaviour is just the manifestation of a deficient root. I hope you find that useful. I have lots of other aspects of paediatrics to share with you, which can all be found at www.pediatric-acupuncture.com or do look at the show notes below the podcast. And thank you for listening. Raw Edcock, welcome to Geological. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me today. Delighted that you're here. I'm delighted when anyone shows up and talks to me. You know, it's funny, when I first started the podcast many years ago, I was afraid that maybe nobody would want to talk to me and I'd get like, you know, six shows done and then like, yeah, I'm not talking to that guy. But it turns out lots of people want to talk about Chinese medicine. So lucky us. I'm so happy you're here. I think being on Geological is like the real graduation into TCM medicine now. You know, you can't check, kind of have made it in the profession if, if you get to be on your podcast. So I'm just delighted today. See, I figured if you're getting published in like Journal of Chinese Medicine or The Lantern or something like that, it means you've made it. Yeah, that's five years ago. No, <laughs> no, no, those are still amazing accomplishments. So this is really important what you're producing and sharing here. So I'm really honored to be part of it and go deeper with this. Thank you. I'm just curious, what's important about it for you? Yeah, I think hearing so many different practitioners and scholars of this medicine share what they've learned and how they're practicing Hey, we're talking about thousands of years of history and no one person can hold it all. And I love journals. I publish a medical journal and I think they're important. And yet there's something about these conversations, especially since we've been separated from each other through COVID and haven't been able to come together in the same way. It brings that collegial connection back to all of us that we enjoyed in school and that some of us have in our practices and many of us don't. So I think it's the breath and its format and uh, that's so important to keep us connected. Well, the breath is certainly there because it's built into our profession. 
you know, like you were saying, we have thousands of years of, of whatever history. I'm not even sure what that means anymore. But the thing that's really important and the thing to me that's most interesting is how's that thousands of years of history unfolding right now in our lives, in our communities, and in the ways that we choose to practice. That's the interesting thing. Yeah, this is such a living body of work, this medicine. And it's one of my teachers in my master program at, at AIMC Berkeley said, the strength of Chinese medicine is in its flexibility. So it's just its ability to constantly adapt, you know, from year to year, from century to century, millennia to millennia. I, I love to think not just about the last 2000, but the next 2000 and, you know, AI and robotics and the role that this medicine will continue to play. I don't know that it'll be practiced much differently even, you know, because it's going to withhold this medicine. It's going to stand the test of time as we move forward, I think. So it's interesting. AI and robotics. Yeah, and nanotechnology. I think we'll begin to understand this medicine even more and more as we're able to see deeper into the body. And, you know, I like to look at research over the last few years. And as medical imaging improves, we've been able to see more of the things that we practice. You know, we're able to envision the channels with fluorescent dyes. And so I'm curious when we start, if anyone's interested in the singularity and when all of these technological advances converge to see this medicine with that. I think this medicine will still be practiced as robustly, if not more so, hundreds of years from now. So I like looking back and I love pondering looking forward, even though I'm not a tech expert in any way. But Yeah, but you just said AI and robotics, and that's a very techie, very cutting edge sort of technology at the moment. In this moment, we're recording this uh, the 15th of February, just after Valentine's Day, Valentine's week, as you were saying. And, uh, you know, like in the past month, AI has been all over the place. You cannot escape it. I've got a buddy who's been an artist for his whole life. And, and he's been using AI to like paint this in the style of, you know, and then he says his name. He's been getting amazingly, strangely congruent images coming up with like how he would do it. It's a little bit creepy. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it can be. Certainly there's this dystopian view. You know, when I think, and I, I try to teach a lot from an integrative point of view about this medicine, because I, I work in a hospital setting. And one of the ways I think of qi is really about the body's innate intelligence and its ability to communicate. And I say like from the cellular to the cosmic and everything in between, qi is so many things, but I do think qi is intelligence. So I just wonder when we're able to advance you know, AI and figure out as a profession, what does that mean for Chinese medicine? I mean, I'm not there yet. That's not what my research is in. But it's what I sometimes lie awake at night thinking about is what will be revealed when we have this enhanced intelligence to be able to understand qi in new ways. So I don't know. That's a provocative line. Qi is intelligence. That's a provocative thought. I'm not even sure what it means. I, I could probably riff on it for a while. I'm sure we both could. But, but I hear you say it and I go, hmm. All right, that's something to chew on. It's just when I think about it and, and observe it in all the different clinical settings and my own experience with qi as a practitioner, as a martial artist, as a qigong practitioner, I think of qi in many ways, of course. You know, there's the nitrous oxide theory. There's I love the idea of light. Qi is light. So I do think we can be light beings and it has this dual nature of wave and particle, which is so perfectly yin and yang. But then I just think she's really about, it's about 
this innate intelligence that we have and that our bodies have, that the, that the universe has, that everything has, and then its ability to communicate that. And when I reduce it more and more, that's what I keep coming back to. Because I guess that's a very like young way of thinking about it because that's a very esoteric, you know, she also can have this structure to it. Yeah, I don't know. I just keep going back to that. And I keep working with that theory that it's really about bringing out that intelligence or really, you know, that the work we do is about removing the blocks that prevent that intelligence from expressing itself in its pure nature. That makes sense to me. People often ask me, how does acupuncture work? It's such an annoying question. I can talk about it a little bit from the Chinese point of view, but I do not want to give my patients a Chinese Medicine 101 course. That's not why they're there. I'm always looking for ways of describing it to them in a way that they can understand from where they are, whether they're seven years old or 70. And I often find myself saying something like what you're talking about here, that there's a capacity that our bodies have, our body, mind, spirit, whatever you want to call this thing. It has. It constructed itself and it renews itself on a constant ongoing basis in addition to regulating itself and, you know, being alive. And sometimes there's blockages. I hate that term. Like, what do you mean blockages? Still working on, on that one. But yeah, there's things that gets in the way or it gets in a habit, it forgets. It's like, hey, I got a groove here. Yeah, you know, and, and now my golf swing, you know, I'm slicing everything because I got this groove for slicing instead of hitting the ball straight. And uh, yeah, there's something about the way that acupuncture works that's signaling that intelligence that the body's like, oh yeah, right. I know how to do this. I got this. Hey, thanks for the reminder. Got it. Got it. Exactly. Yeah. I get asked this question, you know, every day. So many of my treatments are with first time recipients because I work at a pediatric hospital and the way I need to talk about this, it changes in each interaction. And I probably get asked this question five times a day and it's between a parent of an infant or a teenager, adolescent that I'm working with, or an oncologist or a neurologist. It all depends on, you know, who's asking me the question. And what's great is there's a metaphor for almost any age to explain this and almost any person and their background. And, and I try to find an analogy that they can relate to. So sometimes with an adolescent, I would say, you know, stimulating these, these acupoints is kind of like downloading an app into your iPhone. It introduces a bunch of, you know, new information into your body and your body, mind, spirit get to work with it for a while, you know, and they're like, oh, that's cool. You know, we're downloading a new app. It's something that adolescents can relate to. And suddenly they have a connection to the medicine. You know, if I'm presenting grand rounds, I'm talking about, you know, neurochemical reaction, endogenous opioids. I'm talking about, you know, spinal reflexes. But, you know, what I find is the best way that I've experienced to explain this is to let people feel it. Because when they feel it, that experiential learning, it bypasses all the words that we don't always have for this. Because any explanation we use is still limiting and reductionist to what this body of medicine truly is. And so any chance I can, I try to deliver some type of experience, a self-experience of what does it feel like to sense chi in the body or to, to move it. So I often, even if I'm doing grand rounds, we'll start with like three minutes of qigong, you know, or some acupressure points or something like that. And I can see, you see when people get it, their eyes light up and you put a needle in and they feel that qi sensation. That, whoa, what, what is that? They don't even have words for it. 
And, or many, sometimes pe people do oddly, like sometimes even the youngest kids will surprise me at how they describe the feeling of it. And they'll often even times, like if I'll put in a liver three, Tai Chong, they'll say, I just felt something rush up the inside of my leg and even trace the channel. There's no barriers with kids with this medicine. So it's so beautiful to share it with them. But I just keep going back to like one of the best ways I think our profession has to share this is to actually give an experiential learning of it. And you know, I've, I've had different hats that I wear from being a program director at a college to, you know, I also am the executive director of CSOMA, one of our state professional associations in California. And when I ask practitioners, you know, how did you come to this medicine? Or when I was doing admissions, like what's bringing you here? The one thing that I found, and you probably have your own viewpoint on this, which I would love to hear. The one commonality that I found is a positive experience with the medicine, a personal positive experience that wowed us all to the point that we wanted to learn it and share it. We come from tech, we come from yoga, we come from business, we come from academia, all these different backgrounds. But the common denominator is that positive experience that lights us up in a new way to the point that we want to dedicate ourselves to it. That really rings true. And it's so funny. I mean, I hear you say it and I'm like, yeah, that's right. How come I didn't see that? <laughs> so obvious. There's an elephant in the room. People ask about it, like, what is it? Well, here, feel this. I spent all this time trying to explain it. I'm really looking forward to the next time I have a brand new patient. They go, well, how's this work? And what, you know, what does it do? I can't wait to say, well, I'm going to let you feel this. And then you tell me what it is. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. That'll be great. Yeah. And that right there is even a healing because so many people are not in touch with their bodies, right? We can be very disembodied with all of the tech and the stress of our lives. And I found that it's almost like a biofeedback method to, you know, put in a stimulus to a patient, whether you're pressing a point or having them press it or putting a needle in, and then to have them say, oh, this is what that feels like for me. I think that's really validating for the patient that their experience is important to us. And I think it, that in and of itself, them checking in with their bodies to feel that feeling, whatever it is for them, that's a healing right there because they're becoming more in tune with themselves when we're otherwise kind of going in the other direction with our tech-dominated world. So I often use that method when I'm introducing acupuncture. And almost every treatment I do, I would say about 80% of my treatments are with first-timers. So I've really had to get good at delivering what oftentimes is you know, a needle treatment with a patient population that describes needles as their most traumatic experience in their medical exposure. So I've had to find a lot of ways to creatively, gently, and in a way that's filled with curiosity for all of us to introduce this medicine. Is there an anesthetic you could put on before you put the needle in? Well, no, but I can engage your curiosity. That'll do something, right? It changes the mindset. And I love the idea of, in that kind of an interaction, suggesting to the person or, or letting them know, speaking to them in, in a way and saying, there's something in you that's going to find something. There's something in you that has the capacity to sense and feel and notice and tune in and discover what this does. One of the things, and I talk with this about my patients a lot, you know, they come in and they've, they've often, I hate this phrase, it's from Western medicine, they've failed a treatment. And I was like, no, that's not true. You didn't fail the treatment. Treatment failed you. You didn't fail the treatment. But they come in with a sense that their body has betrayed them. And the body is untrustworthy. But with East Asian medicine, acupuncture in particular, I think, we see the body as innately trustworthy and capable. 
And I think I feel like I have to be careful when I say that because it, it sounds a little bit Pollyanna-ish. And I also don't like leading people's mind too much. I want them to have a discovery for themselves. So just that invitation of, well, let's do this. Let's give you an experience and, and see what you feel. Yeah, and I, I do agree that the body is, is innately trustworthy. Although I, you know, again, I do pediatric medicine and I, I do palliative care. So I do end of life. I do a lot of oncology work. You know, I do neonatal care. I see patients who's where I have reframed the difference between curing and healing and that healing can happen even in an active end of life process, right? The body's not going to heal and live for more years, but there can be a healing space that happens even in that journey. And so I think there's a difference there. And I think it's important. Sometimes I do feel that some of, that our medicine and others, that our profession, some of the language we use is that you should be able to heal yourself, right? But that's not true all the time. Like we can't, or that you should be able to cure yourself. Like we misuse heal and for cure and think that if you just have the right mindset, you'll get better if you just have this. And I see disease processes where that's not the case. People are not going to get better. And but there can still be a space of healing and growth within that that is significant. So I'd like to make that distinction. Yeah, I think it's important. And I was a bit unclear with my language there. I suspect there is something trustworthy, even about the process of dying. Is it fair to say there's something trustworthy about living through the deterioration of a disease of some sort? You know, if I go back to yin and yang and that we're living in this world of, of becoming and departing, then yes because it's part of the mix that we're in. You know, a lot of it has to do with our opinions about what's going on. I think that's where, the, where we also get into the, the healing versus curing. And I don't think it's true for everyone, even with the best mindset or the most supportive family or the best clinicians. I think there are still disease processes that I've witnessed that are unfair and wrong and just painful and maybe have meaning later. It's hard for me to know even... If I'm intimately part of the care team, I won't know the experience firsthand of what families go through. So it's, yeah, I, you know, I wasn't trained in palliative care. And when I started working at the hospital, I think originally there was a pretty limited idea of the role that an acupuncturist might play in a pediatric hospital, that it would be limited to needlework and, and adolescents who would accept that intervention. I'm fortunate that I've trained a lot in Shoni Shin and acupressure. I'm a body worker for 30 years, so I'm a cranial sacral therapist. I, you know, I've trained in many forms of body work. So my toolkit is large enough that I've been able to be able to support every patient population. But palliative care, it's a process. And we have a very robust integrative team that does our palliative care work at the hospital. So we have chaplaincy and social workers and bereavement counselors. And, and we're always doing the work to release the grief that builds over time. There are some experiences that hit me more than others. I'm not at all, I've been doing this work for six years now, and I'm not immune to the, the pain and grief of it, and nor would I want to become that way. But some really, there's just some experiences for whatever reason that just hit, like, like running into a brick wall at 60 miles an hour. And I lost my dad a few years ago, about two years ago, and that was the first major loss. I'm 50, so I'm lucky to have gone this long with only one major loss in my life that's personal. But that also changed my experience of professional grief, to have be navigating personal grief 
And I don't have a good answer for that, Michael. I know it's a process and that it really helps to be held by a supportive team, which I'm at UCSF is just an incredible institution and organization to be part of with a lot of mindfulness into helping prevent burnout and promoting resiliency for clinicians. And I don't know, maybe in two years, I'll come back on and have some better answers for you. But I know it's a lot of talking and reflection and also taking the space to, I've had days where I come in and find out that a patient I've been working with for a long time maybe died over the weekend. And sometimes I just have to go outside and skip rounds that morning and just walk and, you know, know that I have the space professionally to do that. Unfortunately, I, I don't always, but I often do. So it's a messy process that's not linear and I hope to get better at it. A messy process that's not linear. I don't know if we get better. Maybe we get better. Do we, I don't know if we get better. Do we get better? Do we get seasoned? I don't think I want to become immune to the deep grief that arises at times in the work that I do when I get some bad news about someone. I'd like to see more palliative training in our profession because I do think that this medicine lends itself so beautifully to palliative care. A lot of that is sometimes includes oncology um, or geriatric care. It can be any age, though, of course, palliative experiences. And palliative isn't just end of life. You know, it can be really just complex disease processes. But this medicine brings a layer of care, the way it connects mind, body, and spirit and all the other factors like I keep thinking TCM is the original integrative medicine, right? I mean, it, it is integrative medicine. It's a whole health system. It addresses every aspect of the person from physiologic to existential. And there's so much that this medicine has to offer. I think some of our clinicians who do oncology, I think there's a lot of people doing oncology work, will or hospital work, will, will engage in palliative care. I would like to see more of us doing it and being an inherent part of palliative care teams across the country because of how this medicine not just holds the patient and their families, but holds the palliative team as well. I don't know why there's just, this medicine is such a, it's the center of the Venn diagram of all these different pieces that we have specialists for. And right in the center is, is what we're trained in and how we think about and approach the body. So I, I'd like to see more training in palliative care, more CEUs and more opportunities for our clinicians to be part of these teams. I just want to stick a pin in that you work in a hospital because I, I do want to come back to that in just a couple of minutes. So I'm just dropping a pin just to let you know and the people listening that we're, that we're going to get there. Your thought about the Venn diagram and, and you could actually put East Asian medicine in the center. That's interesting. I want to come back to that in a second too. I'm saying all this to remind myself. At this moment though, you said that you'd like to see more of us have training in palliative care. So if you were designing an opportunity for us to learn more about palliative care, what are some things that, that we would be learning about? Well, I, it's a good question. And I, I've designed some trainings for our profession, but not in palliative care. There's somebody that, that in the East Coast that offered a pediatric palliative class, actually. It was the only one I've ever seen in our profession. I'm so sorry, I'm like, her name. she works in a hospital. I think, well, first of all, there would be training in the disease processes that often lead us there. So maybe a Western look at that. A TCM look at end-of-life support, specifically. Because that, that surprised me. When I first started doing palliative work and, and I started working with families, and what would often happen is I would be with them for months, and on the day that their child might be in an active dying process, 
the family would ask for me to come in because they would know after all these experiences that usually at that point I'm just doing acupressure, right? Because usually puncture feels a little heavy handed. And they'd say, oh, they, I just know that every time they're getting a treatment, acupressure, they just are so much calmer and everyone feels calmer. The whole family feels calmer. The room is calmer when there's acupressure being delivered. And so they would call me in and usually an end of life process happens in the intensive care. Like if a patient's somewhere else, they'll bring him into intensive care. And I remember first going in feeling like, wow, am I prepared for this? But I knew the family and the child, of course, I wanted to be there. And I kind of went in in my head, like, what am I, what am I going to do to help? And I started thinking, oh, like windows of the sky points or, you know, all the Shen points, heart seven. Like, you know, what are all these points that are going to help the spirit? And oddly, and other people that do this work maybe have very different clinical experiences. My clinical experience every time is that the body wants like stomach 36, wants like spleen six, wants these like feeding points, which to me makes no sense at first. I was like, oh, like why are they wanting stomach? Why am I being drawn to stomach 36 when they haven't eaten for days? Maybe they're not even taking fluids at this point. You know, they've maybe stopped delivering fluids through an IV at this point to just let the person have their process. And then it kind of hit me after a few of these experiences where, my, where I kept having the same clinical inclination. It's like, oh, it takes energy for the yin and yang to split. And sometimes the body gets so depleted that to make that last jump, there needs to be an infusion of chi for that to happen, to kind of guide the path. So I think, you know, I don't know that that's everyone's experience. That's been mine repeatedly in doing active dying support, you know, caring for patients in that moment. So I think there'd be this also like, what is that process in TCM, that that flash of sunlight uh, of, you know, at the sunset, that flash of green light at the sunset that you see over the ocean, that moment, uh, you know, what leads up to that and how do we support that? And I'll tell you that when I've had this kind of experience of doing acupressure with a patient who's actively dying, what also surprised me is when a patient's in an intensive care situation, they have a nurse that's, it's a one-to-one ratio of nurse to patient. So there's very close um, supervision and monitoring. So I would come out from the room and over and over the nurse, he or she would say to me, the entire time you were in there doing this, their vitals were completely stable. They've been all over the place today. And for the 40 minutes that you're in there, we can look in real time. That's one of the interesting things about being in the hospital is to watch heart rate, blood pressure, oxygen saturation, respiratory rate. You know, sometimes I would do treatments when people have an EEG running. Um, so they'll have leads all over their head. It's so fascinating to watch this medicine in real time. And that's always surprised me. And I, I just translate that to like it being a very peaceful experience. When our vitals are stable, I think that's, it's kind of a still point. It's a time of harmonious experience. So even in this challenging process to have, to receive acupressure, and I'm just using big picture points. I'm using, like I said, stomach 36, spleen six. I'm not doing anything fancy. I'm doing things that we would know from the first year. But it's these points are so amazing, right? What they do. Our medicine is not fancy. I mean, we can make it fancy. I'm really struck by your process here. Oh, and I've spent a little time with some patients who I've known over the years, or I've been treating them, and they were in an active dying process, and I would go like to their home. Very similar to you. What do I do? I've been treating them for a while, but... Now they're dying. What do I do? And I can't remember what I did at this point. But I, I love what you did here. You've got this idea. Oh, when do this guy? This, that, that, no. Stomach 36, spleen 6. Uh, some really basic stuff. Paying attention to what's actually present and what the person needs. And I think so often, too, 
you know, we're Westerners. And even though we practice Chinese medicine, it's still very easy to think the mind and the body are two really different things. Someone's dying, you're thinking, I'll do window at the sky points. I mean, there it is again. There's our disconnection right in front of us in our thinking. But the spirit's in the body. It's absolutely entwined. And what I'm, it's just my working hypothesis. You do something to help the body and the spirit goes, I don't have much time here and thank you. I really needed that. It's hard to let go when you're on edge. If you're a little less on edge, it's easier to release almost anything. Yeah, I find it go into my head, like, you know, going in to those first few experiences um, of a process like that, feeling like, can I help? What's it going to be like? Kind of getting a little nervous. Then I go into my head and try to remember my training as default. That's not a bad place to go, right? We have good training. It's okay to start there. But ultimately, when I get into a treatment space, What's interesting for me is I lived and worked at Esalen for a long time. It's a human potential retreat center in Big Sur. And so often my work goes back to a lot of the lessons I learned there in my massage training and other gestalt exposure, which is, you know, have your feet on the ground, be in your body, be soft, be open, be curious, be present, be in your hands, let your heart be in your hands. That's where I go back to almost in every treatment. And I find that when I get into a clinical situation where maybe I feel maybe in over my head or I perceive I could be there, I'm not ultimately, but I feel like, oh, this is new, I'm a little nervous. When I go back to those core principles, then the medicine takes over and I just trust the intuition. And, and I do think that the more simple we can be with this medicine, I mean, it can be so complex and amazing and beautiful. And I, I love that there's something in this for everyone, especially for me working with kids and families. The more I can simplify this and how I deliver it, how I talk about it, the more they can connect with it and the more it becomes part of their life. And so I do think um, just going back to really basic principles of being loving, being curious, being present, being soft and trusting. Yeah. It sounds like good... Uh operating instructions for working in an acupuncture clinic, that's for sure. So connect some dots for me. Heart, hand, body, training at Esalen and hospitals. How'd you get to hospitals? Right. I know. It's so interesting for me to see where I am now. And, and I, I'm not just at, at UCSF. I'm the director of integrative medicine for our two pediatric hospitals. All right. So you're not just working in a hospital. You're the director of integrative medicine. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? It says so much about where our profession can go and where our training can take us. I mean, I think I'm a hard worker, but it's not about me. It's about how strong our training is and how much the system, the Western medical system, needs East Asian medicine to actually heal itself. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of yang, the primal reservoir of yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvellous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. 
It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. So I want to hear more about that because so often it seems like East Asian medicine and conventional Western medicine are kind of at odds with each other, seems to me. And and where do I get that from? I get that from, well, number one, listening to people in our trade, really kind of throwing some shade on Western medicine. I look at that. Look, I live in St. Louis, Missouri, middle of the country, a little bit conservative. We have one of the, supposedly one of the best cancer centers around out here, Siteman Cancer Center. They want nothing to do with the medicine that we have. Nothing. Zero. So there's that side of it. But of course, it's a big world, right? And everything's unevenly distributed. So you're in a place where, ooh, Western medicine, East Asian medicine, like, let's dance. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm in San Francisco, right? Which is certainly a mecca for East Asian medicine and has been for a long time. I'm at UCSF, which is very progressive institution and very focused on diversity and not just you know, in every aspect, which includes academic diversity and, and clinical diversity. So that makes a difference. But yeah, there are still a lot of hoops and hurdles to get through for East Asian medicine to be able to provide the support that it's capable of. It's such an untapped potential in, in America, in the Western world, and, and in Western medicine institutions specifically. I do think there are places that philosophically are not on board yet. The biggest barrier and we have economic barriers, insurance payout barriers, training barriers, licensing barriers. We have a lot of this. But the biggest barrier when I look at other research around this and my own experience is a lack of education to the public and other providers about this medicine and about when to consult it, how to use it, what it's capable of. It's education, interprofessional education and education to the general public that is our biggest barrier still. We have a PR issue. Bias, of course there is. Um, but there's less, I think it's less about fear. You know, and there can be racism in this, absolutely. There's all those factors. But I think the biggest thing is a lack of education about how this medicine improves patient outcomes for, for everyone, how it supports whatever other therapy or pharmaceutical or treatment plan is happening. This medicine can support that. And I think if we come from an either or place, that we're actually not providing the best patient care. I think integrative medicine is the best patient care that can be provided. And we just need to bring East Asian medicine up to balance that out. And honestly, I think that we're perfectly trained to be leaders of integrative medicine programs. We're trained in body work, in Tuena and Shiatsu. We're trained in acupuncture, nutrition, lifestyle. We know how to handle chronic disease. We know how to handle inflammatory diseases. We have tools that can treat any age. We should be leading integrative teams across the country. And we should keep positioning our practitioners to, to do that because we have everything under our scope. So PR issue. So how do you fix that? I mean, do we run ads on the evening news next to Pfizer? I mean, what do we do? How do you, how do we educate the American public? And, you know, especially in this moment, People hardly read newspapers anymore. Like, like, where do people even get their information in terms of, like, we have to educate the public, we have to educate these people? I always get a little bit worried because there's something in there about, we got the answer and we're going to smarten you up. And 
on the far side, you know, and this is, I mean, this kind of fits in. All right, you're, you're getting Michael Max's weird thinking, right? Okay, so you can look at things like, say, the Cultural Revolution in China, right? Well, we're going to re-educate some folks. Re-education means we're going to destroy your life and make you think like we do, all right? So sometimes when I hear education, I'm like, oh, we're asking people to make some real changes with how they think. Now, I'm all about education. Maybe I'm not. Actually, I'm making a case against it. So just for fun, I'm going to make a case against education here, all right? Just because I'm worried about re-education, right? But here's what I love. Here's what I really love and I think is fabulous and gets around that problem. Learning. How do you help people learn something new and exciting and helpful and something that makes their life better? When I hear about education... Yeah, I'm afraid of being on someone's receiving end of education. That worries me. And, you know, maybe to some degree, because, yeah, I'm here in the Midwest and it's conservative. I'm not particularly conservative, but, you know, it's conservative here. And, you know, I've got some sensitivity toward the folks that I work with. I'm not trying to change their thinking. They're skeptical and they should be. And, and I'm fine with their skepticism. It's like, I don't want to educate people, but I want them to have an opportunity to explore and discover. Yeah, exploration and discover. That's where I'm at. Absolutely. And it goes back to some degree when I talk about education. Again, I at the beginning, we talked about experiential education, I think is one of the best things. So when I, I'm going to bring a few of your pins that you've dropped together. So how did I get started in a hospital? When I was still uh, about halfway through my master program, a friend of mine who worked at UCSF and did staff support programs said, hey, I know you teach Qigong, because I've been a movement teacher my whole life, martial artist and other things. He said, would you come in for a staff retreat and do an hour of Qigong with the staff? So I was like, that sounds great. I'd love to do that. I was going to do a DO program. I always wanted to be in a hospital setting. For a while, I had the idea of the clinic with the herbs on the wall and that, but I really like to interact with people all day. So I was kind of more drawn to a big center, but I didn't know that it would be possible necessarily because there was no acupuncturist at this hospital at the time. So I said, of course, I'll come in and do Qigong with your staff. They loved the Qigong. And I said, well, I was setting it up. I said, you know, it'd be super cool. Let's do a pop-up acupuncture clinic and we'll make it an externship day for my college. So that first retreat, there were maybe 60 people at the retreat and we had about six people show up for the acupuncture clinic. But instead of going like, oh, that wasn't a success. I was like, that's six more people that I think five of them had never had acupuncture before. I said, that's five more people. They did that same retreat about six months later with a different group and word had spread. This time about 50 people of the 60 signed up for the acupuncture session. So then from there, I said to him, your staff loves this free acupuncture. Let's make it a weekly thing. I'll make it an externship site for my college. Be great for students to be able to get into a hospital, work with clinicians that are gonna ask really intelligent questions and share this medicine because experiential learning of this medicine bypasses all the other catchphrases, PR slogans, right? So we set up this externship and it was such a win-win for everyone. Really, Michael, it was the Trojan horse to bring this into the hospital from my point of view, right? Instead of being this external invasion, if you want to use TCM terms, like, we want to treat your patients, let us in. It was more like, let's nourish the jing of the hospital and watch it just grow from there. And we did that for years. We ran that program and we were looking at COVID. It stopped around then. But we did over like 5,000 treatments for 1,200 different staff members. I took basic stats on them for this clinic and about 80% had never even had one exposure to acupuncture prior to that. 
We had administrators, nurses, surgeons, physicians. We had people from all over the hospital, people that worked in hospitality and food service. Anyone could pop in and be treated. And it was soon after that that my position was created and I was approached to apply for it. And so, you know, and when I came out onto the floors and started in this job, people were like, oh, I know you. Oh, I've had acupuncture. I'm so glad my patient's going to get acupressure, acupressure seeds or acupuncture because I had it. I know it helped me and I know how gentle it is. So I'm so glad you're here. So when I talk about education, I don't want to come from this we know better. I actually, again, I'm all about integrative. I don't think it's us and them. I want all of us on the same page for the betterment of patient care. I think the more we can provide experiential learning, the more this medicine will take root. And just lastly, one of the reasons I do pediatrics is because I thought, let's get them while they're young. Like talk about marketing, right? It's like tobacco marketing, but instead of like being malicious, like it's benevolent tobacco marketing, which is let's hook them while they're young. Let's show them what an amazing tool this medicine is so they have it their whole life. Exactly. Well, again, that's why like the people where I live, they're skeptical. They didn't have anyone that took them to an acupuncture when they were a kid. I mean, some of my patients do now. I see some young folks and I mean, I've been here long enough that I've treated kids that were in high school. And now when they come back from visiting after they've graduated college, they'll come in for a treatment, right? So yeah, get them while they're young. I am struck, Ra, how we have walked this dog around the block and we've come back to something that we're talking about at the very, very beginning of this conversation. When people say, how does acupuncture work? And the response is, great question, feel this. This is exactly what you're talking about. Or more like, what did you feel? Like, you know, not just feel this because we don't know. They, they might even not feel something like, let's try this and you tell me. I'm so curious. And I think the more we stay curious as clinicians, I think the better results we get. I think we, I teach a lot of acupressure to families and because we have limited money to hire clinicians right now, right? We need to work on insurance payouts. We need to, we have to do all of that legislative work that the ASA and our state associations are doing. So there's definitely like logistic work to happen. Until that happens, we're going to have a limited number of clinicians we can hire in a lot of these settings until we prove the return on investment of hiring acupuncturists, which is significant. Plenty of studies have shown reduced cost in hospital settings, medical settings, and in healthcare in general when acupuncturists are engaged. But until that time, one of the best ways we expand integrative medicine is to train other people in it. So I do a lot of work, you know, providing training for nurses of things they can do at bedside and, and also physicians and families. So I teach a lot of acupressure. And one of the ways I have found that people get the best results is instead of thinking like, I'm doing this to you or for you, of this like, oh, like, I'm really curious. Like, I'm just going to touch there. I'm going to listen. And you're going to tell me what you experience. And the more we stay in this open, curious mind, I actually think the more efficacy that we see in our treatments. So I like being in that curious place and staying there. And it works with kids especially well, but I see no reason that shouldn't continue. We need to be knowledgeable in what we're doing, but it, combining that with curiosity helps us stay in a place of listening and being receptive and being out of the ego and in the heart and the hands. So I like that. Curiosity. Clinical curiosity. Clinical curiosity. Are we taught clinical curiosity in school? Is there a clinical curiosity 101? Are we actually taught to be curious in our schooling? I mean, often we're taught a lot of knowledge. I got nothing against knowledge and we need plenty of it. So nothing against knowledge. But like you were talking about earlier, oh, I'm going into this situation, someone's dying. Well, let's see, do I use window of the sky? No, actually, I just walk in and be curious and listen and see what they need. I wonder if that's being taught 
I mean, I don't have any connection with schools. I just have a clinic and a podcast. That's my life. Well, you bring so much curiosity to this. You're a living embodiment of that. You're so sincerely curious, or at least you seem to be so sincerely curious about the life and work of the guests you have on the show. So I think you're applying it every episode. It's a living example of that. All right. Welcome to Geological Curiosity 101. You know, when I was an undergrad, I, I, I double majored in chemistry and dance, which made no sense to, to either department. They both scratched their heads. And, you know, it was a true liberal arts, early 90s education. And uh, Where did you go to school? Where was that? I went to Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. Yeah. So it's kind of an old school from the 1800s, say, you know, 1880 maybe or earlier. And, but they had really good they had a really cool chemistry building and I loved the building and it had a great dance program and I just ended up double majoring. And I wrote a paper at the end talking about scientific improvisation. It was kind of bringing together this idea. Oh my God, that's fabulous. Scientific improvisation. Yeah, so I did so much work in dance about like, and I danced for a while. I trained with a company called Palabolas, really interesting company that is all contact improv and is all about this kind of creative, open improvisational state to develop work from. So it doesn't come from the mind, it comes from the body and movement. And, and I said, that's something that's lacking in science is this kind of improv state, this curious, you know, I didn't witness that in my training in chemistry. You kind of go in and it's very linear and you think about what you want. You're setting up the parameters and it's good to have those controls and framework in place. But I just pondered, what if we infuse some of that with improv? And so I think that's now when I look at my work right now and I love my work, I have my dream job. I wouldn't change anything about this gift that I of what I get to do professionally right now. But I think it's really culminated in the work that I do and, and how I approach it. It's this combination of movement and flow and improv combined with science. And I was chemistry focused on neurochemistry. So I love the neurochemistry of, of acupuncture medicine too. So it's really come together for me in this delightful way that I could have never anticipated. You just described how I practice. I've got a handful of knowledge. I've got a handful of experience and a handful of I don't know what's in front of me. Wait a minute, that's three hands. Yeah, so I'm juggling all the time. That describes my clinic day. That's it. And it's delightful. It's fun to use the mind. It's wonderful to use the heart. And there's something about the uncertainty of moment to moment that requires presence. And that's a real gift to be able to have work that requires you to be present. And that's such a gift to be present for. You know, I'm just, I never, every day I have, I would say every day, I really confidently can say every day I have a moment in my clinical work where this medicine wows me, where I'm like, are you kidding? Like where I have patients that maybe have had every dose of morphine or opioids or benzos, sedation meds that they can get to try and cope with what they're going through. And it's not enough. And I come in and provide some simple acupressure and it provides relief in ways that all these other medicines can. Now, I'm not saying it's better than the medicines. Again, I'm about integrative care. I'm about balancing both and using the right dose of both. But there are times where I, I see this medicine up against the most highly emetic chemotherapy drugs where antiemetics are not doing it. And like opening the chong with acupressure is enough to change the patient's experience immediately. Or migraine headaches that are 10 out of 10 pain that have been intractable for days. And a couple like GB34, GB41 needles, like suddenly like, five minutes, 10 minutes later after needle retention, my pain is four out of 10. I can't believe this. And, you know, and I, and I just go, yeah, isn't it amazing? And sometimes I walk out and I go like, holy cow, like, wow, 
it just still, I feel so lucky to be a Western woman in whatever experiences I've had that has been able to learn this medicine. And I'll be heading to Japan in a few weeks to train more there in a pediatric acupuncture training. And I've trained there and in Hong Kong a little bit. And just to have this, it's such a gift to have had exposure to this training and the, the ability to train in it, get student loans to do it, which are expensive, but I still was able to like, you know, figure out how to finance this education, to be able to practice and every day witness this gorgeous medicine play out is, I just, I look forward to every day I come home happy and fulfilled as this medicine just wows me. And sometimes against the backdrop of such serious illness, because in clinic, you know, in training, you see people that can ambulate, they can come in, they're healthy enough. They have a certain level of health to be able to come into a student clinic in school, you know, and then to have gone into a, a major medical center where I see such a wide variety of things to see that there's something for everyone from this. And some really, really ill people. And that this, even the most simple thing, yin tong and kidney one, right? Acupressure, acupressure seeds on shenmen. It's like things that we think are so simple that can completely change the experience of a patient. It shows me how strong qi medicine is. Now, herbal medicine, I miss practicing. I do it with friends. I, I can't wait till we bridge that frontier. But just to practice the manual therapies and see qi medicine, uh, you know, manual therapy, acupuncture, acupressure, shonishin, to see how that changes people's experiences. It's just such a gift. So lucky. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Yeah, I can see now how you can put East Asian medicine in the middle in the way that you were talking about. And I love your story of not like, hey, we got this great stuff and we're going to bring it in here. You guys should have us. No, you're treating the people that are there. Everyone from the food workers to, you know, housekeeping to doctors, nurses, administrative staff. They get an experience. They get a taste. Now it's not foreign. In fact, it's something that they enjoy. And so why wouldn't they also want that for their patient? I mean, so often in the conventional medicine system, well, you know, you need to read the literature and we got to check the research and make sure that there's all that. And yeah, you know, it doesn't hurt. But what if a bunch of the staff, enough of the staff to be a critical mass, is like, oh yeah, acupuncture, I know that. That's good stuff. They don't need research. They've had the experience. You know, it helps. Like, I do research. I'm a clinical researcher also. Uh, and so I do clinical research. I Good God, where do you get all the energy? I know. 
acupuncture, Michael. <laughs> Chinese East Asian medicine's where I get it from. There's just so much to do. It sounds to me like you're doing like six jobs at the same time. You know how I do it? Amazing teams. I'm part of amazing teams in every venture. It, CISOMA is an incredible board. The, the team I work on, the integrative medicine team and the at the Stodd Center within UCSF, incredible team. So it's really about being a part of a team that shares a vision. So that's how it, it is. So it's not just me, but I do like to light these gorgeous fires everywhere of like, let's do this. Let's publish this medical journal. Let's do this research project. Yeah. So I just, I think, you know, just another thought I have is some of the language, you know, like chi and, you know, it can feel foreign at first when people first encounter our medicine. I mean, it does come from, from Asia and, and their new words and new concepts that maybe they haven't been exposed to. When I talk about experiential learning, when people experience their own chi and their own body in that way, it's not foreign anymore. In fact, it brings them to the deepest part of themselves. I've had a lot of kids say to me after a treatment, a lot of kids will, you know, my patients immediately report relief or, or if they're nonverbal or infants, I can see that, you know, the heart rate's improving, oxygen, whatever. You can see clinical improvements. Sometimes though, kids will say, you know, my pain's the same, but I feel like I can deal with it better. Or like my, you know, my nausea hasn't changed, but it's not bothering me as much. So there's this idea of like how our medicine can do symptom management, but it increases this coping and resiliency. Um, so there are these two factors that happen, right? And they're sometimes both move. Sometimes the symptoms stay the same, but coping and resiliency increases. And there's one thing I've heard from many patients that's a really interesting statement. And I've heard it at least a dozen and a half times where kids will say, I just feel more like myself. I feel more like me, which is hard to do in a hospital right? For everyone, you know, either there, it's scary, it's, they're not at home, they're not with their siblings, their pets, their school, everything that normalizes them. So that's a big statement when a kid in a hospital can say, just after I got that acupuncture, acupressure, I feel more like myself. The first couple of times I heard it, it kind of scratched my head. And then I realized we all experience our own chi. We just maybe don't, maybe don't have the word for it. Like gravity all ex existed until someone named it, you didn't see it, right? And so I think we're always experiencing that at varying levels. And when we experience our own chi, we're really brought back to ourself. So while this medicine can feel foreign upon the introduction, upon the experience, we realize that this medicine lives inside all of us. That makes sense. I often have patients, especially newer ones, but even sometimes people I've seen in a while, and you know, you come in and, and the room is really still, and uh, they're quiet. They go, well, how long am I going to feel like this? And I remind people, it's like, well, look, nothing from the outside was put into you. What you're experiencing now is you. Acupuncture can only bring up and out what's already present within you. This is you. And they're, you know, they're like, oh, I remind people of that. Yeah, and, and a, a better you. Like sometimes, I remember when we first got cable in the early 80s, there was this movie called Swamp Thing that was a movie that was popular and there was this elixir that they took and it made you more of who you are. So this botanist became this like plant thing. You became Swamp Thing, but this kind of the bad guy became this kind of you know, I went from being good-looking villain to being kind of demented-looking. And so I think it's kind of like that. It brings out our true nature, but actually our best one, I think, you know, so. Yeah, well, that's, that's the Zheng Qi that we talk about. It touches the Zheng Qi. I'm very struck here, and I'm taking this as an inquiry to take into clinic with me and investigate and play a bit with. So often people come in with a problem of some sort, and we want to know how's that problem. That elbow pain, eight of 10, like, you know, God, I hope it's a four or a two. You know what I mean? But hearing what you said, 
about what people say. It's like, yeah, my nausea is the same, but it's not bothersome to me. Now I'm wondering how I can inquire, how I can connect with that part of my patients that's resilient, that, that beyond whatever is, air quotes, the problem, their relationship. Like, how's the, your relationship now with that thing? Yeah, because I think this increases our vessel. You know, the way meditation does, it makes us a bigger vessel to experience it. It helps us separate sometimes and feel like, oh, there's me and then there's my pain, you know, or my discomfort. But that's not me. I'm all these other things, too. So it gives this buffer space. And this is as you explore this, Michael, I'd like to hear more because I think this is an important part of what we need to bring into our research, which is both that quantitative. What's your number now? right? What's your pain number, your nausea number, or however we're evaluating that on a scale. But then what's the qualitative experience? And I think when we do acupuncture research that we do a huge disservice to the entire project if we're not evaluating the qualitative experience. Because we don't have markers for that necessarily. I mean, there are some scales and some measurement tools out there for it. But I think we need to develop specific tools for measuring this in clinical research because it's significant. And it's the different way that this affects our brain and the amygdala and you know the nervous system. So you, know, you might have these like local vascular changes that immediately change the sensation of pain, but you're having these deep neurologic changes. That is that coping and resiliency and that lifting of the spirit and that you know, brightening of the shen. And so as researchers, we have to ponder this and figure out how to embed it into the data that we collect to make sure that we're really capturing the full experience of what patients are going through. 100%, 100% agree. And I'm, I'm thinking there might be some doctoral students listening to this right now and thinking, hey, I could do some research on that. I could look into that. That would be a great benefit to our profession to have people looking into that. I, I'm not a researcher. It, it's just not my bag. I'm much more a clinician, but I can tell you this, I can take this idea and, and start to go investigate it with my patients. I think it'll be fruitful. And especially I think it'll be fruitful because it, like I said, I'm not crazy about education, but I love learning. I don't want to educate my patients like, hey, there's this other part of you and you should pay attention to it. Not my bag, but inviting them to notice and to look and attend and see and connect with this other part of them that's bigger. You were talking about a bigger vessel, this other part of them that knows something about attending and that there's more to them than their pain. Bringing that into the room and reminding people, that seems like it could be fruitful. There's more potential in understanding this medicine as Westerners. We have to continue, like we were talking about earlier, breaking down an inherently Western viewpoint of this medicine if we limit that lens to just the quantitative or just the focusing on the symptom uh, without opening it up um, and having this more circular poetic understanding of the body and health and healing. I just think there's untapped potential there and that we have to continue to kind of break down some of our Western thinking and really learn from, from more practitioners um, who come from East Asian culture and experience um, to help us better practice this, perhaps. I don't know. My experience with many practitioners in at least Taiwan and China, where I've done some study, Many of them were kind of Western in their thinking. And a lot of the practitioners in China these days are looking to get more Western with their thinking, not more classical. It's not TCM. I mean, TCM is kind of its own thing. But what you're talking about here, this holism 
that is often left out of Western medicine. I'm afraid many of our friends in the East are adopting that. It's like show it to me, like show it to me on the machine, and then I'll believe it. So I've got a feeling, Ra, it's up to us here in the West to develop that. I think we can. I think we have the capacity. And and here's a beautiful thing about East Asian medicine. It's all over the world. It's not like it just belongs to China. It's all over the dang world, every continent. And so who does it belong to? It belongs to anyone who's practicing it. So yeah, this could be our contribution. It's kind of not, and I think about like the rise of American Buddhism, right? And how like it was kind of pushed out of Tibet and you see Buddhism like traveling, you know, I mean, of course it was in, you know, India, Nepal, Tibet, all these other places in these countries. But then there was this push and this, I think of like, because I used to practice Zen Buddhism and and um, like Suzuki Roshi and these teachers that come here and brought it here and then it kind of morphed into its own thing. I often think about what what is American acupuncture specifically? What is, you know, how is it being practiced here? Yeah, I don't have any answers there. You're right in the middle of it. What's American acupuncture look like? Well, it looks like a lot of different things. I think it actually looks like a lot of different things. It's everything from a community acupuncture clinic. That's a very unique expression of American acupuncture to what you're doing. I think there are some very... Yes, I would dare say, I'll put a flag down in this one, that there are some unique American expressions of our medicine, and it's up to us to discover and bring them out. Well, I hope to be a part, to continue to have the opportunity like I do, to be part of generating more opportunity in medical centers. I'm hoping that the work that we're creating at UCSF, that we can publish about it, write about it, share the resources we've been able to develop and see more programs pop up. So I, I hope from a personal level, to be part of the catalyst that drives it forward in every hospital. Because I know, Michael, without a doubt, that acupuncture medicine, East Asian medicine, but even if it's just acupuncture, acupressure, just the manual therapies, and and of course I want to see herbal medicine and everything else integrated, but even just to start with manual therapies, this needs to be at every hospital in the country for better patient care, significantly better patient care. And we have to do that. When I lecture about it, I say it's not just on us, it's on the whole system to realize that Integrative medicine, if the whole if the whole idea of Western medicine in research, right, with drugs is you have a drug and you weigh the risks versus the benefits. And if the risk is low and the benefit is high, then ethically you choose that drug over another one. So that's true with interventions as well. So if we have this intervention that time and time again is showing efficacy for so many different things that we actually have the funding and time to research. If we had more funding and time and clinicians to research, we would show many more areas of efficacy. But when we have enough research to show that this medicine makes a huge difference and is very low risk, then it becomes an ethical issue for the entire medical system to drive it forward. And when I lecture and do grand rounds, this is the point that I drive home is that it's not just on acupuncturists to prove ourselves. We've done enough proof. We've done enough research. We've shown enough RCTs that this meets the standard. So ethically, integrative medicine is an ethical issue. It's not just a wouldn't it be nice. It's core at the ethics of medicine. So I'm hoping to change the hearts and minds of enough people or help them see that we have a lot of advocates working to bring this in and not just our practitioners figuring out how to magically open doors. Again, I'm really struck with what you did in terms of helping a medical system recognized from the inside. That's what acupuncture is. That's really powerful. Now, if there's folks that have been listening to this and they're thinking, ooh, wow, I'd like to maybe work in my local community and be able to do something like this. Are are there resources you can point people towards? Are there, how would they get started? I mean, other than listening to the podcast and going, ooh, I, I got the Trojan horse idea for getting acupuncture into my 
local system, how would they start? There's a couple classes out there. There is one CEU that's offered. I did one with TCM Zone about creating hospital programs, everything from privileging to who to reach out to, to basic things that you would need to know to get started. There's another CEU that's out there that maybe Claudia Sikovitz, or I'm trying to remember who did it, that offered about hospital programs. You know, I think it's there. it would, it would be nice for there to be more of this, more training, uh, more kind of guidebooks. There's the hospital uh, program that Megan Gale is doing. Yes, yes, yes. She's got a whole book. She was on the podcast a little over a year ago, I do believe. Her work is amazing and she's trying to um, become her own nonprofit now. So this is a really good time to connect with Megan Gale and the, it's the HHP, the hospital handbook. I'm so sorry. I'm just, I should have all these names written down, but so Megan is a wonderful resource and doing a tremendous amount of work. The NCCOM has some guiding on this for how to privilege and accredit people um, into hospitals. There needs to be more because it's not as hard as we think it is. If we have a contact or we're willing to reach out and even write the most basic proposals, get a foot in the door, I find that this medicine takes off pretty quickly from there. It's just getting the foot in the door and having the courage. And, you know, I did talk about being this like gin tonic of the hospital instead of this external invasion. But, Michael, I also I also like sometimes use the analogy. People have heard this a few times that I think we have to be like the Kool-Aid guy. Do you remember Kool-Aid commercials in the 80s? Like the big picture of Kool-Aid would kind of smash down the door. The kids would be like, I'm thirsty. Yeah, me too. And this all of a sudden the wall would break down in this big like Kool-Aid pitcher would come in and go, cool it. And like, I'm here to like, to, you know, quench your thirst. We have to have a balance of that. Like we want to be tonics, but we also have to kind of be bold and confident in our training and know that no matter what you think you do or don't have, you have enough training. If you've graduated from a program and you're licensed, you have enough training to completely improve patient care at your local hospital and make a huge difference in the lives of those patients. So I want people to not doubt themselves, to be bold. And I do think we need more resources and blueprints to help people guide that. So maybe I put together another CEU class on that. Maybe you're inspiring that. I think you need to put together the Mr. Kool-Aid CEU, big, bold, sassy. You need some Kool-Aid. Kool-Aid. Kool-Aid this thing. And I don't mean that in the kind of drink the Kool-Aid, but hey, there's that. Maybe that too. So. Maybe. Electroacupuncture Kool-Aid test. I just, you know, I think to some degree, sometimes I do think in our profession, we can be a little like, do I know enough? I don't know all the terminology. Do I have enough training for this? And I just think we have to get over that and realize that what we have to offer is so amazing and so in need that we have to do this for our patients. We have to get over any insecurities we have professionally or personally and realize that our patients need this, that people need this, and that the Western medical system needs this medicine to heal itself and come back into balance and into holism and away from a purely reductionist viewpoint. So the healing is tremendous. And, and I have concerns for the profession, which we won't go into, but we do see some decline in the profession and in enrollment and schools closing. And, I have concerns. There's a contraction happening in the profession right now. And I, I hope that is just a, an exhale versus a trend. And, uh, you know, that's another topic, another podcast topic. But Another topic, yeah. I think it very much is a podcast topic. And maybe you'll, uh, I've been thinking about putting some panels together. So maybe uh, you'll come join us for one of those conversations. But in the meantime, we have to just keep pushing forward and get this into the lives of as many people as we can. Share the love. Maybe come from the point of sharing the love. 
Rod, this has been a delight, and I'm so looking forward to walking into my clinic tomorrow with some new ways of thinking about helping my patients become a little bigger than their problems. Clinical curiosity, yeah. Clinical curiosity, yeah. All right. Michael, thanks so much for having me. Until next time, then. I'm reminded yet again of the flexibility of East Asian medicine and how it's changed and adapted to the times and how it continues to do so. How its fundamentals are both timeless and practical and how it seeps like water through culture and time. I so appreciated Robin's thoughts about the importance of not just telling others about acupuncture or inviting them to read the research, but more importantly, of having the experience. It mirrors how I too came to the medicine after a friend who was concerned about my health, he badgered me into trying acupuncture. There is simply no description that would not fall short. This is not a marketing problem for us, but actually an opportunity. I appreciate as well Robin's long view that younger people who are exposed to our medicine will in time speak for it as they grow into adults, which I think is to say that in time, especially here in the West where we are used to and actually value blending cultures together, influences at the fringe can in time become completely mainstream. We are currently in the midst of that migration with our medicine, and that means we have many avenues and opportunities to practice in a way that fits for us and to serve our communities. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.